We've been in a, a long series in the book of Exodus, and uh, last week we got to the, the midpoint of the whole of the book of Exodus, chapters 19 and 20. And in chapters 19 and 20, we see a very important moment that, that Israel, who have been now set free from the slavery of their past, they now come to God's presence at Mount Sinai. And as they come to God's presence at Mount Sinai, they come into that presence and they realize that all that God has done for them is to bring them to himself. And just like we've been experiencing in worship and just praying just a moment ago that God has done all of that work of liberation, who's come and done the plagues and provided for his people and brought them into his presence because in his presence, he wants to now speak to them. And what we saw last week was something fascinating that although Israel was now free and were at the presence of God in the mountain at Mount Sinai, they had a serious issue. And their serious issue was, despite the reality that they were free, they had no idea who they were. And God comes to them and says, I've shown you who I am. Now it's time for you to discover who you are. And we saw last week that the primary thing that slavery does to all of us, whether that's slavery to sin, slavery to our brokenness, slavery to our past, whatever it is, whatever it is that, that is enslaving our heart, enslaving our minds, causing us anxiety and stress, whatever that is, it is designed to strip your identity from you. The very definition of slavery, when people are trying to enslave people, what they try to do is strip the identity of that person away from them. So they have no choice they have no freedom of expression, no freedom of thought. They're forced to do just what the other person tells them to do. And Israel has had that for 200 years, and now they've come to Mount Sinai, and they're like, we have no idea who we are because everything has been stripped from us. And we said last week that that's the reality for so many of us in this room as well. That, that just freeing ourselves from sin as Christ does on the cross means that we're now in an identity vacuum. And we're now trying to go, okay, who am I now to be? I know I'm free, but what am I being created free to do? And everything in chapters 19 and 20 of Exodus is God coming to his people and going, this is what you're free for. This is now who you are. This is how I now want you to live. And he speaks to them about his character that he's placed in them. And the first thing that happens, as we saw last week with Moses on Mount Sinai in chapter 19, is God says, here are two things that you need to know about yourself. You're a kingdom of priests, and you're a holy nation. And, and this dual idea of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation forms the foundation of Israel's identity, but also our identity as well. When God speaks about being this idea of a kingdom of priests, the priests really had three functions. It was to connect God and the world together. They were the ones that interceded and stood in the gap between God and the world. All of the things that they could see happening in the world, and they know of God's heart, they wanted to see those two things come together. The second thing that the priest would do is that they would invite people to come and experience the presence of God. They would create an environment by which people could encounter his presence, knowing that if they could just encounter the presence of God, they would be changed. And then the third thing that the priest did is, is to help them to, to understand, not only is it about being kind of invited into the presence of God, but now we're called to imitate God's character in the world. The priests were imitators of the character of God so that they could show everyone in the world what God's character and his heart and his love actually looked like. So, so when God says to Moses, here's who you are, you're a kingdom of priests, he's saying, you're a bunch of people that can connect people to God, invite people into his presence, and actually come and do that in a way that imitates the life and the glory and the love and the character of God. And then he says, you're a holy nation. 
We saw last week that that meant two primary things. It, it's the idea of, of being transformed by the power of the Spirit of God in us. And, and when we're transformed, we, we are able to deal with some of that slavery that we carry around with us. Some of the faulty thinking that is in our minds, some of the core false beliefs that we hold on to, we're transformed, as Scripture says, by the renewing of our mind. The Spirit of God transforms us both personally and communally together. But being a holy nation was also about being set apart. It was about being set apart for the world. Not set apart like be weird in the world, but set apart for the world. Not to be a monastery up on a hill that kind of goes, oh, I don't want to be in that mucky thing called the world. Actually, God saves us, creates the church, because he wants the church planted in the heart of society, in the heart of the world, and that we would be a community of hope wrapped around a community of pain. That we would be ones who would say, yeah, we're set apart because we want to offer the world an alternative narrative. That where things are stressed and anxious, we can offer peace and hope. When people are angry and violent, we can show another way. Where we can live in such a way that we take the character of God, we bring it down to this world, and we say there is another way to live. This is all chapter 19. And God, God says to Israel, this is who you need to know who you are because I've set you free for a purpose. But the culmination of this comes in chapter 20 that we're looking at today. Because in chapter 20, God takes it a step further. He's laid that foundation of priests and holiness. But in his presence, he takes it a step further. And what he basically says is, look, I've revealed myself through how I've acted amongst you. You've seen what I've done, and that helps you understand who I am. Now I'm going to speak to you about your actions. I'm going to speak to you about how you should interact with one another, how you should walk with each other, how you should be in relationship with me, relationship with yourself, relationship with others, and relationship with the world. And God comes to Moses and does something on the top of Mount Sinai that up until that point he had never done before for his people. And the thing that he does changes them forever. The Jewish people today, as well as us Christians, we take so much of who we are in this one moment right here in Exodus 20. And to show you what happens in that moment, let me take you back once again to the top of Mount Sinai. Last episode, we journeyed together from the foothills of Mount Sinai right up here to the summit. And we saw Moses' journey in a different light and how difficult it would have been for him to actually make that ascent, but also the call that God had on him to come up here and meet him face to face. But something also happens on the top of the summit that actually reshapes not just Moses' life, but the life and the character of Israel itself. And to help you to understand that a little bit more, I want to introduce you to a chapel, a chapel that sits on the top of Mount Sinai here, and tell you a little bit about the thing that reshapes God's people. In the fourth century, Julian of the Euphrates built a chapel at the peak of Mount Sinai, so worshippers would have a place to shelter and perform religious ceremonies at the very place where God's presence was thought to have been revealed. Later in that same century, the Emperor Justinian ordered the construction of a three-aisled basilia here at the same site. The present chapel of the Holy Trinity, a private Greek Orthodox church, was completed in 1935, 
and now rests at the eastern end of the original complex. It amazes me that right here at the top of Mount Sinai, worshippers can actually gather in a church building around a priest who is able to perform religious services. The chapel itself is truly breathtaking and is a powerful reminder of something that we see right in the text of Exodus 19 and 20. When God gives Moses the law here on the top of Mount Sinai, it's because he desires to be in intimate relationship with his people. He wants his people to come into his presence and he wants to bring his presence to them. And that's what I love about this Greek Orthodox chapel right here on the summit, because people are still gathering to worship God right in this place. This is still the intimate presence of God and it truly is special just being in here. You know, often we think of the Ten Commandments as rules, as boundaries, as a strict law that we're afraid to break, but it's not like that at all. The Ten Commandments was God's way of saying, I want you to know who I am and I want to be your God. I want to be connected intimately with you. And the chapel here today is still a living legacy to that very moment. And here is what is fascinating about all of that. You see, while God had placed some stringent laws about who was allowed to ascend up into his presence, the giving of the law to Moses was God's way of saying, I want to now descend down the mountain and be with my people. It was God saying, here is my character, here is my nature. And I don't want all of your life to be about some mountaintop experience. You see, the Christian life isn't always about ascending up to the top of the mountain with God. Actually, the beauty of the Christian life seen through the story of the Exodus is that God has descended the mountain. God has come down with us and he now meets us in the power of his presence in the everyday, even in the mundane things that we struggle with in life. God is there. And that is why this moment on the top of Mount Sinai for Moses receiving of the law is so critical, not just for them in history, but right here now. It was a, a real privilege to be able to get into that chapel. It's not actually generally open for tourists. It literally is at the top of Mount Sinai. Uh, and uh, it's strictly reserved for those uh, of the Greek Orthodox tradition. Uh, and uh, they gave us permission to film in there, uh, which uh, I was very grateful for, because I, I wanted to show you something of that presence, that, that holiness, that awe of God in that place. And it's in that moment where God draws Moses into his presence that out of that place of awe and holiness, he speaks these words. Let me read you uh, Exodus 20. And God spoke these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. You should not misuse the name of your Lord, your God. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work at all. 
Neither you, nor your son, or your daughter, nor your manservant, your maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you should not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox, or donkey, or really anything that belongs to your neighbor. These words are perhaps some of the most famous that we have in Scripture And whether you've been a Christian all your life or you're relatively new to faith, you've probably heard something of these words. We call them the Ten Commandments, but actually that word is not in the Bible at all. The biblical context to these words uh, in the Hebrew means literally the ten words, the Decalogue, the ten words. And what's fascinating about these words is that they are central to both the Jewish and the Christian faith. But because they're so familiar to us, it's really easy for us when it comes to God's law, the Ten Commandments, for us to assume that we understand what they're about and therefore take a certain posture towards them. And what I want to do with you today is actually open up a fresh perspective for you about what these laws are all about. I want you to understand and to hear God's heart behind them. Because what's critical is not necessarily just what they're saying, but it's the character and the identity, both of God and ourselves, that God is trying to communicate through them. Let me start by telling you what the Ten Commandments are not. They are not a bunch of legalistic rules that are designed to basically constrain you, hold you back, and make your life miserable. These are not rules that are created so that you're suddenly in a whole bunch of red tape with God, okay? Remember that God has just set his people free from slavery. The last thing God wants to do is put his people back in slavery. But so often we look at these laws and we think they're designed to basically shackle us and hold us back and strip all the joy out of life. These are not prison bars. They're really just traffic laws. And traffic laws are important. See, when you drive a car, you have the freedom to drive wherever you want. You can drive down the wrong side of the road if you want to. No one's actually going to stop you in the moment, right? You have freedom. But we have traffic laws, and those traffic laws are created with lines on the road and lights and signs to help you to safely arrive at the destination that you want to go to. And if everybody stays within their lane and within those traffic laws, we're able to operate as a successful society and get efficiently to where we want to go. The law, these Ten Commandments, they're kind of like that. No no one's going to shackle you. They're not designed to hold you back. No one's going to force you to do them either. They're God's path of life. It's like God saying, I have a destination for you. I have somewhere where I want you to go. And within this structure, there is life. Within this structure, there is flourishing. There's safety. There's health. If we live this way, there is a certain flourishing that comes not just for us, but also for those around us. Do you get that? The second thing is, that the the Ten Commandments are not a bunch of rules that you follow in order to gain your salvation or to gain more love of God. And I think so often we think of these in that way. We think, oh man, if I can just be a better Christian, if I could just try to live with the law a little bit better, if I could try to adhere to the Ten Commandments more, I'm going to either earn my salvation or I'm going to get more of God's blessings. I'm going to get more of his favor. I'm going to get more of his love. 
Salvation and God's love is not the reward of God's law. It's the reason why we want to live out God's law. Are you following this, church? It's not the reward. We don't follow the law and then check a box and God goes, well done, and he puts a medal over us and says, congratulations, I love you now. We do the law because it comes out of a place of grace, out of a place of love, out of an re- intimate relationship we have with God. Remember, Moses comes into God's presence and God speaks to him about how he should live. In fact, Jesus himself said this. He says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. He doesn't say, if you obey my commandments, I will love you. He doesn't say, if you obey my commandments, I can tell that you love me. He's saying, if you love me, If we're in a relationship together, if there's this relationship of love that we have together, out of that will flow a new way that you'll want to live. You'll want to do things that honor me. You'll want to do things that connect the world and me together. You're going to want to live that character of the kingdom of priests and as a holy nation. Those things will naturally desire to come from you because they come from a place of love. This is why it was great in worship that we spent that time in that place of understanding our love of God and his love of us because from that flows everything we're about to do. And there's many of us who think if we can just do this list better, God will love us more. And I want to break that slavery from you. Anybody here? I want to break that slavery from you. You've been set free from Christ by Christ Jesus because he loves you so much. And out of that love comes the the glory of life. Here's the third thing that the Ten Commandments are not. They're not irrelevant for today. They're not to be cast aside. Oh, that was God in the Old Testament, and now that we have Christ, and now that we are a, a kind of a regeneration, a new covenant, then this old stuff, it doesn't really matter anymore. I can live how I want because I have the grace of Jesus, and he forgives me. And that's not what's happening here. In fact, Jesus, in his own ministry, he said this, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to wipe it away. I didn't come to just say, hey, this doesn't matter anymore. No, I've actually come to fulfill it. I've actually come to show you in my life how it is actually a blessing. I want want to show you what the law does and the heart behind the law. And I want to show you how I am the only one who could ever fulfill the law. This is the fascinating thing. You see, the law itself was always designed to move people to Jesus. And so when Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the law, what he's saying is the law is designed to draw you to me so that when you find me, you can then live out the law. Are you you seeing the flow? So let me tell you a little bit about what the commandments actually are and how you might be able to live them out. And I want to do that by by breaking them down for you in a way that perhaps you've not heard before. But I I hope in doing this, it'll really help you to understand how God has created you to be. Most people, when they look at the law, most scholars, when they talk about it, they break it into two sections. The first four being about our relationship with God, and the next six being about our relationship with one another. And that's absolutely a fair way of looking at these. In fact, Jesus himself pretty much saw it that way when the lawyer asked him in the Gospels, hey, how do you summarize the law? He says, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. The Shema, as it's known in the Torah, in the, in the Jewish faith, the Shema points us to the culmination of the law. We are to love God, and out of that, we are to love one another. So it breaks quite neatly down into this kind of two sections. But I think what's really important to understand for the Jewish people as they've arrived at Mount Sinai, their context is not necessarily this kind of idea of the the Shema of pulling it all together in two easy ways. Their concept is still slavery and brokenness. 
And their concept is identity vacuum. And I, want, I need to know who I am. And it is the context of Egypt and slavery that God brings the law into that. So I think actually the, the, the Ten Commandments break down into three sections that are all about how we love. Because God is calling his people now to live in a new way, to live in a place of love, not a place of slavery and fear. The first three are about how we love God. The fourth is about how we are to love ourselves. And the final six then are about how we are to love one another. And they flow in that order really well. Now, as I unpack these for us, I also want to do it in three specific categories to help you to understand the heart behind what the Ten Commandments are all about. I want to talk to you about three identities because that's what God is trying to communicate. The first identity is what I'm calling Pharaoh's identity. I'm not speaking specifically about Pharaoh, the actual person and his identity. I'm talking about a summary identity, this idea of what humanity is like in its brokenness and sin. What we see in the whole of the Exodus journey is Pharaoh becoming this kind of picture, this metaphor, if you will, of what humanity is like apart from God, what humanity acts like when it isn't in relationship with God. So that's Pharaoh's identity. Does that make sense to you? Then I'm going to tell you about God's identity, how God reveals himself in the Ten Commandments. And then finally, I'm going to tell you about your identity, our identity, how that relates. So there's going to be the identity of broken, sinful humanity, the identity of God, and then our identity. Making sense? Okay, let me give you some examples. Let's start with the very first one. The very first one is, of course, when God says, you will have no other God than me. No other God but me. It's very important that that's the first one because, of course, Israel's come out of a, a pantheon of religious understanding when they were slaves. The, the Egyptian cultural religion had over 60 different gods. So God says, no, we're leaving that behind. That's not the way things are. There is just one God, and you are to worship God. You're, you worship me. You're not to have any other gods. But actually, God is saying something else about identity here that's really important. It's easy to miss this. Remember, the context is slavery and coming out of that Pharaoh identity. The reality is, so much for many of us, is that we actually put ourselves in the place of God. It is so easy to make life all about yourself. It's so easy for us to begin to think that actually we are the center of the world. I, I remember raising my daughter. There were many years where everything revolved around Mia. Now I'm still wrapped around her finger a little bit too much, but she still knows now that the world does not revolve around her. Are you with me? But there is something in our identity, in Pharaoh's identity, where we would basically express it like this. I am God and I rule. And I want you to be honest with yourself because you'll hear that and you'll be like, no, no, I don't believe that. But then our actions Monday to Friday suggest that we are God and we rule. Are you with me? Am I preaching to anyone? Getting a little uncomfortable? Good, I'm just warming up. <laughs> but the Pharaoh identity of this idea, I am God and I am rule. And, and, and there's so much of that in us and God knows he needs to break that. So God with this first commandment is saying, I am God alone. <laughs> it, it is just me. I, I am the only one. I have all authority in my hands. All control and authority sits in me. Because when we declare that we are God and we rule, we're basically saying we're in control. God's saying, all authority is in me. Our response to that then, our identity now as free people, is to say, we are worshipers. We are worshipers of God. And that's really important because when you're in that Pharaoh space of saying, I am God and I rule, you worship yourself. And God is saying, I'm the one who holds all authority. Our response is to say, I will worship God. Are you with me? Here's, here's the second one. 
The second one is you will make no image. You will make no other idol. Now, this is really important again because they've come out of their slavery and out of that pantheon of 60 gods. There's lots of idols that are created that they can worship. And and here's the fascinating thing. Pharaoh would use those idols as a way of controlling and manipulating his people. He would oppress them under a system of image worship, idol worship. And, and, And this is really important to understand because... I think all of us struggle to some degree with a deep-seated Pharaoh identity of basically worship my image. Now I'm really preaching. Worship my image. Follow my social media. Follow my ideas. Do what I say. I want to control. I want to influence. I want to be the focus. Worship my image. One of the things that we're seeing in the social media space right now is all these apps and all these AI tools that can take a really not attractive person and turn them into a stunning person. You no longer had to be like incredibly hot. You could be ugly and still hot today. And all of this is creating for us this idea of like worship my image. And God is saying, hang on, we need to break the back of that slavery. And he's saying, you have me. He's basically saying, I am all you need. And if you have me, you don't need to worship anything else, whether that's anything in the world or whether that's yourself, you have me. Our response to that is to say, my identity, therefore, is I am undivided. Because one thing that image worship always does, it divides your heart. And and you end up worshiping a whole bunch of different things all over the place. Pharaoh's identity is, come and worship me, I'm the best. God is saying, you don't need anything else other than me. We're going, I am undivided in my heart. Are you seeing this still so far? Anyone? Yeah. Are you alive? Yes. Okay. Here's the third one. By the way, we're not doing this for all 10. Don't worry. This would be about a four-hour sermon. <laughs> but I'm going to do it for a few. The third one is this idea of not misusing my name. He says, don't misuse my name. When I grew up, I thought this was all about swearing. Don't swear. If somebody beats you to the lift and the doors closed, don't use Jesus' name out loud, right? Now, that is very important, and please don't misuse God's name in that context. But I don't think that's actually what what God is saying here in this moment. He's drawing his people to him out of a place of slavery, and he's saying, I've saved you, I have redeemed you, I have set you free. Now, don't misuse my name. Name, in biblical context, means character, your good name, my character. He's saying, don't misuse my character. In other words, if you're going to say that you're a Christian, but your life is leading a a very different picture to my character and who I am, stop doing that. Don't misuse my name. Don't claim to be a Christ follower and and do all this other stuff that everybody else is doing, because that's just not going to do any priestly function in the world at all. You're not helping people connect God together. People just think you're just like them. Don't misuse my name. Are you with me? And then there's this other thought as well that I think is in God's heart here. And that is for us as Christians amongst each other. Because I tell you one of the things that's at work in the global church right now that we have to be really, really careful of and we need to stand up against is spiritual abuse. And spiritual abuse happens when somebody takes God's authority to manipulate people within a church context. The number one, I'm just going to be honest with you. The number one thing that Chris and I constantly pray about is that I would do my utmost to avoid the temptation to use God's name to get you to do something I want you to do. That's every pastor's greatest challenge. But it's not just a pastor's challenge. 
It's also your challenge too. That we wouldn't misuse the name of God for our own personal game. Pharaoh's identity is basically this. God serves me. Right? Like I'm going to use God to get what I need to get. God serves me. God is basically saying, I serve no one. Our response is to say, we are servants. We are servants of God. You follow the flow? So I want you to see what, what God's doing just in this first section of loving God. He, he's trying to uproot some of this broken Pharaoh identity that so many of us still hold on to, that I know I still hold on to, where I say, I am God and I rule, where I say, worship my image, where I say, God serves me. God says, I alone have all that authority. You don't need anything else other than me, and, and I serve no one. And our response then in the reality of that as free people is to say, I am a worshiper, I am undivided, I serve God. Follow it? Isn't it great? This is the path to life. This is not shackles to bind you. It is something to set you free. This is why the fourth one is the most, I think, important. Keep the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. Have a day off, God says, and we all ignore it. And, and he binds this in creative history. He says, in the same way that God himself rested on the seventh day, you should also rest. And God is not doing this because he thinks everybody needs a yoga retreat. He's doing this because he's speaking about their identity. Notice this. When you're a slave, you are never resting or free to rest. Slavery, by its very definition, is you go, 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 go all the time. They work seven days, uh, 365 days a year. That's what it meant to be a slave. So when God comes and he says, this is not about how you love me. This is also about how you love yourself. And if you don't rest, you are not proclaiming the freedom I have paid the price for for you. Because when you fail to rest, you're basically adapting the identity of a slave. This is why this is so key for Hong Kong. Because every single one of us, we all work too much. We, we all drive ourselves so much. That song we sang earlier, there's so many times where Chris says to me, even when I don't see it, you're still working. Even when I don't feel it, you're still working. You never stop. You never stop working. She's right. I need this more than anything. And here's what the identity is. The Pharaoh identity is, I will provide for myself. I will consume and provide. I'm in control. And we drive ourselves because we're fearful of not being able to provide. And God is saying, I'm your provider. Rest. Take a breath. You can't do it all in your own strength. You, don't, you can't drive yourself to success like that. You can try, but you're just going to reach burnout. You need to rest. And in that place of rest, we say, I have faith in God. I have faith and I have trust in him that he will provide. And that means that I will stop my work. I will turn my email off. I won't respond to WhatsApps or whatever it is. I'm going to break away. I'm going to spend time with my loved ones. I'm going to get away from all of that stuff that's draining all my energy. I'm going to refill it by being in relationship with God. And that's the way I'm going to find life. That's the path to life for me. It's really interesting because we think Sabbath is about coming to a church service. Sabbath itself is worship. Come on, church. I like it when you come to church services. Please keep coming to church services. <laughs> but I need you to know that Sabbath itself is worship. 
Because when you Sabbath, you're saying, I'm no longer a slave. I have freedom to rest. And when you rest, you proclaim a different narrative to the world. Rest, my friends. Rest. Now, here's the other important thing about Sabbath and why I think it's here, right here, number four, and why it's about ourselves. Because here's the reality. When we fail to rest, we're really bad at loving others. When you're exhausted and tired and worn out and burnt out, your patience with people goes like this. At least mine does. I know when I need a Sabbath is when I don't like you guys anymore. <laughs> That's when I need a break. That's when I need to get away. Because I love you guys. I really love you guys. But there are times when I don't. And that's because I've gone and I've gone and I've worked and I've worked and I'm exhausted and in pain. This is why God says you have to keep the Sabbath and it's about loving yourself because out of that, then you can keep the next six. Because the next six are really hard if you're exhausted. The next six are really difficult if you have not rested. But if you're resting in me, abiding in me, finding your presence in me, then you will flow to your love of others. Now, I'm not going to break these down one by one for you because it will take ages, but let me put them up on a slide. This is the next six of them. Um, you don't need to take a photo of this because I'm going to give you one slide in a moment that I have all ten. So, but you can look at this. I want you to see this because here you see God has a heart for family. God has a heart for people. God, God believes in life over death. That God is non-violent. That God wants us to treat each other with respect and honor and peace and love. This is a manifesto of how we should be walking together with one another. And yet that Pharaoh identity so easily strips us of the freedom that God has created us for. Are, are you with me? And, and all of this is his invitation. It's like, come to me and out of me, come and live this stuff. Now, if you're anything like me, let me put up all 10. And you can take a quick photo of that. And um, we're actually going to make a social media post about it later uh, this week. So you can uh, keep an eye out on our Instagram and Facebook for that. Uh, but you can take a photo of that. You can uh, put it up somewhere where you can see it regularly. Because this is the path of life. Now, you're all taking a photo. Huh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, serious, I'm going to finish with this. I don't know about you. But when I look at that list, my time is spent looking at Pharaoh's identity because I relate to it. I look in here and I can see so much of Pharaoh in me. I can see so much of the brokenness still there in me. I can, I can feel the temptation to make myself a god. I can feel the temptation to, to make people worship my image. I, I can feel the temptation to want to steal other people's creative ideas. I, I, I can feel that brokenness in me to look with my eyes upon others in ways that I shouldn't. So much of Pharaoh I know still sits in me. And, and part of that is absolutely right because the law is to drive us to Jesus. And when we see this broken Pharaoh-ness in us, it should compel us, drive us towards Jesus. But here's what usually happens. When we find the Pharaoh stuff in us, it doesn't drive us to Jesus. It drives us to ourselves. And we try to work harder to achieve everything on the right-hand side here in our own strength. The worst thing you can do off of a message like this is to go home and go, Andrew told me to pull my socks up and try to be a better human being. It's not what I'm telling you today. 
If you try this in your own human strength, you will be exhausted. The most exhausting thing on earth is being religious and not saved. Oh. The most, the most exhausting thing is being religious but not having a saving relationship with Jesus. You cannot achieve this on your own in your own strength. And that's what the law is all about. The whole point of the law is to bring us to somebody who can do it. This is why God, Jesus said, I didn't abolish it, but I fulfilled it. Paul, writing in Romans 10, he put it this way. He said, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. But notice this, who believes, who has relationship, who is in a relationship, not righteousness for everybody who works hard, tries hard, strives hard, does stuff on their own strength, righteousness for those who believe because Christ is the culmination of the law. And as the culmination of the law, our belief and relationship with him releases the law in and through us. This is why Paul would write that we no longer have the law on stones a tablet, but they're written on the flesh of our heart because the spirit of God now is in us to help us to live in the way that would bring God glory. We don't do it in our striving, we do it in our abiding. We do it in our relationship with Jesus. As we're drawn into him and intimately in relationship with him, we are then drawn out to the world. The last thing I want you to do is just try to work harder. What I wanna invite you into is to be so inspired by the path of life that you just wanna be more with Jesus. The very central passage of the vine is John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a person remains in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, it is useless. It is just religion without salvation, and that's painful. But in me and with me, it is the path of life. Abide in me, he says. Don't try to go through that list and make it all work for you. Use that list to propel you to Jesus so that in relationship with him, you are propelled to the world. That's the path of life. And that is Exodus chapter 20. Let me pray for you. Father, I am so grateful for everybody here. I'm so grateful for your presence with us and your call to us. And Father, we sit in the beauty of these 10 commandments, these 10 words. And Father, they invite us into reflecting on our Pharaoh identities, on the brokenness that we carry so easily amongst us. And the law reveals the Pharaohs in us, not so that we would feel bad about ourselves, so that we'd feel alone in that field, so that we would beat ourselves up, the law reveals our brokenness so that we are drawn to Christ. That we are drawn out of ourselves to Him, the one who can save, the only one who's the fulfillment, the culmination of the law. So Father, for every person here who is recognizing some of the Pharaohs in their identity, I pray that in this moment they would come to you. I wanna give you space to be able to do that just in the quietness of your heart. We've seen today God's identity, who He is, what He stands for, and the way that He is the opposite of all that slavery that we experience. And out of His identity and who He is and how He's made Himself known, we then respond 
And so I want to pray for each one of you as you abide in Christ, as you come to Jesus in a beautiful place of grace. I pray that you would feel him transforming and changing you as a priest and as someone who is holy. And I feel that out of that, I pray that you would know the joy that it is to live in this world in a way where we love our neighbor, where we don't commit adultery, where we don't fight, where we don't seek brokenness and slavery, but a world where we long to love and honor and respect and see peace come on earth as it is in heaven. Father, would you inspire us by you and by how you are all of the law in a person and in your spirit. So I wanna pray for the release of the Holy Spirit over every person here. And I wanna pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, write on our hearts your path of life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm just gonna to respond together in worship. Would you stand with me?